Over the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the, uh, the book of Philippians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Philippi. Now, we've titled this series that we're walking through, A Peculiar Joy, because um, this little four-chapter book is filled with over a dozen uses of the word joy or rejoice. And so, you may be thinking right now, okay, Shane, what's the big deal about joy? Well, the big deal uh, about, um, about that is this. The situation in which Paul writes this letter, um, it, 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 he's writing this joy-filled letter, is not a situation that any of us would want to find ourselves in. Now, he's in prison awaiting trial and what will eventually lead to his execution by the Roman emperor Nero. You see, that's why the joy that Paul expresses and he encourages in this letter is peculiar. You and I um, both know that it's um, incredibly difficult to feel joy in, in, in when, we, when we find ourselves in hard or desolate places. Some would even affirm um, that in these difficult times that we're in, it's even more difficult to encourage others in joy. I can't have joy myself. How am I going to enc- be an encouragement uh, to, toward joy in someone else? And so we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul's secret here? Well, if you're listening today and you're a skeptic or you're not yet believer or maybe you, you, you feel like you're someone who's checked all the right religious boxes and still feel nothing close to this feeling called joy, um, or you may be like me and you have a bent towards cynicism, the answer may sound like a Sunday school answer, but nonetheless, it's the reason for Paul's joy, and it's, and it's not a what, it's a who, and his name is Jesus. The letter to the Philippians is Paul communicating to us that the way to cultivate this peculiar joy in any and every situation is to focus, is to contend, and to cultivate our lives individually and collectively toward the good news of Jesus Christ. And so with that, let's begin reading chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes this, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Some of your translations will say object there. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now, throughout this series, um, I've talked a lot about Paul's love and his affection for this little church in Philippi. It's so clear um, how much he loves them and how much they love Paul. Now, this isn't some surface-level love that we're talking about here. Now, this is real love. This is love that is willing to say hard things um, when they need to be said. Because here's the thing. Real love doesn't simply, quote, tolerate wrong. Real love is willing to speak and even act to make a situation right. And based on the verses that we just read and from other verses that we're going to read over the coming weeks, it's pretty clear um, to me that in the Philippian congregation, one of the main issues that Paul wants to address is a bent toward self-centeredness, which leads toward disunity in the body. 
Now, self-centeredness isn't something that's unique to the church in Philippi. Now, you need to know, like, if, if you're tuning in this morning, you've never heard anything about Jesus or the Bible, like the arc of the Bible um, it tells us that the default mode of the human heart since Adam and Eve um, is, 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 since they believed this lie of the serpent in the garden, at the core of their rebellion, what they thought was God really didn't know what they needed most, and they had to literally take matters into their own hands if they were going to survive. That's what they believed. It meant doing something forbidden by God. What does he know? I've got to get mine. It's self-centeredness. If you know the creation story, you know that not far behind this self-centeredness um, comes, you see it in the, in the story. It lays itself out. Self-centeredness um, happens and then disunity and disintegration happens right after that. Mankind runs from God, who they enjoyed community with before. Man and woman separate from one another through, through blaming one another for the self-centeredness. Man separates himself um, from creation, that serpent that you created. And finally, God separates himself from sin and rebellion by exiling the humans from the garden. Now, after the rebellion, we experience some type of disintegration in all of our relationships due to the self-centeredness of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and our own tendency to do exactly what they did. This is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's when we run to things other than God. Sometimes these are good things, but it's when we run to those things other than God that we believe are going to give us ultimate happiness or joy. And we do this at, even at the expense of people and things in our life. And see, when we do that, it perpetuates disunity and relational disintegration. In the garden, there's a promise that's given that one day this sad, terrible thing that has happened will be undone and all creation will be joined back together, integrated back together in and through a Redeemer who would set everything right. And the Redeemer's name is Jesus. He is the object that Paul is calling us to focus our attention on in verse 2 that I just read. He, Paul's saying the cure to self-centeredness is to fix our eyes on Jesus the King. He lists in these verses four grounds in which we do that. And then Paul sings for us this beautiful hymn full of rich gospel goodness. First, the four, the, the, the four grounds that he gives us from these um, are, are, are these. Encouragement, he says, if there is any encouragement that comes from being in Christ, the word encourage literally means to put courage into. What Paul is saying here is that being in Christ, being in Christ puts strength into his people. One of Paul's favorite phrases from his writing is this little two-word phrase, in Christ. Family, the good news of the gospel is that by the shed blood of Jesus, you have been integrated into him. You have been joined with him in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection as a new creation. The second thing is that Paul says, if there is any consolation of Christ's love. When you console someone, think about this. When you console someone, what are you doing? Well, typically you're meeting them in their sadness or in their grief. 
Paul here is encouraging the church to remember how the love of Christ met them in the place of their deepest grief. If you're in Christ today, he's done the same for you. Your sin, your failure, your shame, your guilt, however deep that goes, what Paul's saying here is remember that the love of Christ goes deeper still. Third, Paul says, if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, and the word fellowship just literally means partnership. Paul writes in Ephesians that, that we, have, we're, we, have, we have one Spirit. The book of Romans, Paul writes that the Holy Spirit um, dwelling in us is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And here he's reminding us that we partner together with the same Spirit indwelling us. And so, though we may have differing opinions, different temperaments, different political views, different worship practices, different cultural mindsets, our participation with the Spirit outweighs all of those things. And it informs how we live life together despite our differences. And fourth, Paul says this, if there is any affection and mercy. Now think about the story of God. Throughout the scriptures, we see a people, since Adam and Eve, we see a people who continually rebel and run after other little g-gods because they believe that those little g-gods are going to give them more of life. And we still do this, don't we? We still do this. And, And though And and, and through none of our own merit, what we see through the pages of Scripture is the story of a loving father who continues to run after his wayward children and disable people for his own possession in order to saturate the world with his glory in and through them. We did nothing to merit this amazing love, and yet he freely gives it to us. He he puts... um, And he puts on display in vivid detail through the life of his son and in his life and death and resurrection this ultimate picture of other-centeredness and humility. And you get to this point in this text, and I love this because it's almost like the cork just blows off and Paul just can't contain himself anymore. And in, in a desire not to assume, in a desire to be crystal clear about um, where true unity comes from and where the eyes of humanity should be fixed, Paul pins the words of a popular poem and communicates the person of Christ. He writes this beginning in verse 5. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. He let go of this place by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Y'all unpacked in these verses like dynamite. This is the scandal of the gospel. 
You see, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the fact that our rebellion is so bad that God literally had to write himself into story, that God had to become man in order to reconcile us. These verses tell us that what Jesus did, we could not and would not do for ourselves. He was willing, and he did, and he left everything behind for the purpose of bringing life and joy and restoration to his people. Redemption and restoration. Hear this, integration. It matters so much to Jesus that he was willing to give his very life for it. And now, God the Father, this verse tells us, God the Father has exalted Jesus. We like to say this a lot here, and we want to say this loud and clear, that Jesus Christ is king. That Jesus Christ is king to the glory of the Father. And so may we fix our eyes individually and also collectively on our good and gracious king. Look at verse 12. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, my dear friends, Just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul begins verse 12 with, uh, therefore. And so he's saying, here's just kind of literally what he's saying. Um, Because of everything that I just said, here's what you need to do. When we talk about, quote, doing stuff, it's the place where many of us are going to check out. Because this is the place where the rubber meets the road. It's not simply, and you need to hear this. You need to hear this. It's not simply sufficient to believe the right things. For an example, the Gospels, there's a couple times where the demons profess Jesus as Lord. Their theology is spot on correct. The book of James tells us that faith is accompanied by works. In other words, right belief compels us to appropriate action. You want to know what someone believes? Look at what they do. Why wouldn't this just be automatic for us? Well, because just like the Philippians, we are vulnerable to self-centeredness in almost every part of our life. We tend to disconnect right belief and right action. Some of us have a tendency to to pursue primarily a robust intellectual framework about the scriptures or, or Jesus and And so knowing what is important is kind of the thing that we hold up and value. Some of us have a tendency to pursue um, primarily acts of mercy through social justice and community service. So doing what is 
uh, doing is the thing that's most important. And, and here's the thing, at the root of a singular pursuit of either one of these options, it, it's self-centeredness and idolatry. And this is why I say that, because when we singularly focus on either, those things become the ultimate goal. If I could just do more, if I could just know more, my joy is found in how much I really know. If I could just do more, my joy is found by how much I can really serve. And see, neither of these things actually ends up being about Jesus at all. It makes it all about us. This is deeply troubling on an individual level, to be sure. But remember, Paul is writing to a church, and so we've got this idea that this is an individual thing, but Paul's writing to an entire church, and so he's writing to this group of people. It's infinitely more trouble to, to imagine a, a group of people who are seeking to work this out um, as a communal family together when everybody has a tendency towards self-centeredness, right? It's like a time bomb. That's the struggle that Paul urges this church to contend toward with one another. If you remember that from chapter 1. Why with one another? Well, why not alone? Why not all by myself or just with one other person? Because it's nearly impossible to understand which idols we are believing without having others speak into it. Do you know why communities of faith either tend to be knowledge-based um, or knowledge-seeking churches or justice-seeking churches? Because they forget the fact that community needs to be made up of people who are willing to lean into doing both. Don Carson says this, and this is a strong quote, but it's true. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of the sort. Christians come together because they have been saved by Jesus, and we owe him a common allegiance. He says they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Now, in the passage of Scripture that I just read, Paul reminds us that we are children of God in Christ. Brothers and sisters, a family with a perfect father who loves and cares for his kids. And so, taking the, the advice of Paul, we are contending together in this. We struggle together toward unity in Christ, killing our own idols and living as a family of missionary servants among a, as Paul puts it, crooked and perverted generation. Now, there are probably some of you who are not followers of Jesus who are listening to this, um, but, but I, think, I think regardless, like I want you to hang with me for a second, because when we hear the word perverted, I think all of us across the board, our minds probably go to sex. And that is, that is what Paul has in mind here, but it's bigger than that. The point that I think Paul's trying to make here is this. Anything that looks, um, anything that's not named Jesus, that, 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 that kind of um, promises us that it can give us ultimate joy, and we run toward it, that's crooked, and that's perverted. See, that's the inferior narrative that the serpent hissed in the ears of man and woman in the garden. This is the inferior narrative that seems right to every man, but it's the inferior narrative that will lead to destruction. 
as a community of faith in Jesus, our aim is to fix our eyes on him as the true hero who gives us a better story. You need to know that there is a better story. We find the better story in him, the way to live a life, um, a life filled with the Spirit, eyes fixed on the king, holding on to the word of life. And just, sh- just so you know, the word of life is Jesus, growing in wisdom and knowledge and poured out for the sake of others, especially the brothers and sisters who are part of this family that we call Resonate but more broadly, blessing the community around us. And as Paul writes here, I love this picture, shining like stars in the world. The picture is beautiful. He says this kind of um, uh, living in accordance with the true story will cause us to be shining lights in a dark world. And you need to know this because Paul's aware of it. You're aware of it. The world around us screams out in, in some way or, or, or another that, 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 that people from different sides of the political aisle or different races, different cultures, different backgrounds, different neighborhoods, different countries, that, that, that the world screams out that really if we're that much different, that we really can't have that sort of unity. That's what the world tells us. In Resonate Church, may we show the world around us by our word and our deed that every man and every woman and every child has equal dignity and value as an image bearer of God, no matter where they're from and no matter what they do and no matter who they are. And just as the gospel, as Paul wrote here, comes to us and comforts us in our sin, in our grieving, this grace and power is available for anyone with breath in their lungs. May we show the world the embodiment of a better story, the story of God, the, the, the story that God saves sinners by grace through faith in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ our King. And you may be sitting there right now thinking to yourself, um, this sounds all fine and good, Shane, but I've never witnessed this type of church that you are talking about. One that puts its own self-interest aside for the sake of loving and caring for one another. And I'd love to tell you that we're perfect at doing this, but you're, if you're part of Resonate, you know that's not true. But I'll tell you what is true. In John 13, Jesus, Jesus gives the world permission. He gives, he gives people outside of the church um, every right to call the church to task. Jesus gives permission to say, um, you will know that they are my people by the way that they love one another. And the direct context of him speaking um, these words was to this diverse group of men and women seated around a table at the Last Supper. See, we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about this nearly enough about these 12 disciples. And not just the 12 disciples, but the larger group of disciples. In this group, just in the 12, well, more broadly, the, the women were not part of the 12, but they were part of the group. But think about just the 12 for a second. There were regular working class people, wealthy tax collector, Jewish zealot. Women were added in there as well. Um, they were given dignity, so that probably threw some of the men off because women were not dignified in that culture. 
Um, to, to, like, like, it would be safe to say that there was so much tension and anger and, 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 and just countercultural things going on and even natural hatred that the culture built into the people in this community. One another, right? This is a group that would have never gone out of their way um, to be at the same party or to be at the same meal or especially following the same rabbi. We do well to not forget this. I am sure, I am sure that there are probably times that maybe are not recorded here where Jesus had to tell Simon the zealot not to stab Matthew the tax collector. Bitter enemies. That wasn't a surprise to Jesus. And he calls them and and is willing to embrace the messiness of this family and here's what we see from the scriptures. They were willing to continually follow him. And y'all, what, watch, what, watch what he does in them and through them. The nations, through this tiny band of disciples, never supposed to be in the same room together unless somebody's getting stabbed, right? The nations hear the good news in their proclamation they see the good news evidenced in their lives and even, and, and again, what the gospel show us clearly, what Acts shows us, and what um, the epistles show us is a real life look that even Peter, he had some missteps. He was out of step with the gospel. Even in their sin, we are encouraged that Christ is the answer. The good news through the disciples, the good news makes it all the way to this little European church made up of Gentile believers, receiving a letter of joy and encouragement from a Jewish man who was guilty and uh, guilty of killing and persecuting Christians, who is now writing this letter from a jail cell, um, defending the faith that he rallied against and who spent the last several decades of his life proclaiming the name of Jesus to the entire known world. That is, it's the same gospel that makes its way to us in Nashville, Tennessee, or wherever it is that you're watching from this morning. And it's the same gospel that enables us to loosen our grip on false joy for the sake of a lasting joy that cannot be shaken. A peculiar joy, even in the hardest of times, and to be willing to work out our own salvation um, with fear and trembling. When we run to self-centeredness and things that we believe are better than Jesus, it's being willing to say in every situation, Jesus is better. Jesus is sufficient. And to be reminded that Jesus is better and Jesus is sufficient. And so this morning as we close, here are the questions that I want to you to reflect on and think through today. How does this good news stir you to action today? How does hearing this good news stir you to action today? Action may be um, that there is, um, there, there is, there is some, some known idolatry that maybe you need to confess and repent and turn from for the sake of unity. Maybe you're watching this and you've, you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus and, and maybe the good news is stirring you to believe in him, to 
call him your king today, please let one of us know we want to pray with you. We want to, we want to join you with this family or a family. If you're watching from another city, we want to plug you in with a church family where you can be loved and cared for and discipled well. Community is important. We're going to talk about partnership in, in all of this next week and why it's important for, for um, yeah, like this to be done com- with being committed to a local congregation. So how does this good news stir you to action today? Second question, when you think about being in community with others who may be different than you politically, racially, socially, economically, there are other things. What fears or apprehensions do you have? When you think about being in community with others who may be different than you, what fears or apprehensions do you have? Third, how might these apprehensions point toward idolatry in your life? Idolatry of comfort, idolatry of control, idolatry of power, idolatry of security. How might these apprehensions point toward idolatry in your life? What does it look like to repent of that? Confess that to another brother or sister. And then finally, what are some intentional steps that you could take this week to begin building bridges with those in this faith community who are different than you and then even outside of Resonate? What are some intentional steps that you could take this week to build bridges with those in this faith community who are different than you or outside of Resonate? How does the good news of the gospel and the unity that we have in Christ compel you to act in accordance with building bridges and building a community of people who may be different than you? Take some time, just a few moments, to consider those questions. And I'm going to pray for us and then set up communion together. Just take some time to consider those questions. Father, we praise you for making your truth real to us in Jesus Christ. Help us to fix our eyes on him, the word of life, so that we, your church, would embody the glorious good news here in our community. We ask that what we do, how we live, and the way we love may increasingly become a worthy, our worthy response in this time and in this place. Amen and amen.